Well, we've been working our way through the book of Judges. And again, I alluded to the purpose of uh, why God has uh, uh, working in this particular way with his people was that he was trying to teach them uh, the proper way to fight, uh, and that was through faith. And he was teaching them many lessons, uh, again, the idea that he is the true king, that he is their deliverer, and uh, they really don't need a human king to uh, accomplish the things that he would want them to do. And so often, like we see in our lives, in our, in our nation, uh, the people of Israel had turned against him, uh, rejected uh, what he had to offer, and he would have to call them back. Uh, and he would do so by bringing enemies around them, uh, putting them through difficult times until they uh, cried out in repentance, and uh, rejected the Baals and the other foreign gods and asked for God to bring relief. And then he would raise up this a judge to bring relief to them upon their repentance. And so we've seen this cycle over and over again. <clears throat> and we're about the point in their history. We've been, they've been going through this now for over 300 years that uh, they're approaching rock bottom. And uh, as we'll see here, and, um, and one of the most famous judges is about to come on the scene, and that would be Samson. And so before we st <coughs> consider um, scriptures related to Samson and his role as a judge in Israel, I thought it would be good to take a look at the Nazarite vow uh, that he took. Um, <coughs> this would probably give us a better explanation for who he was and what he did and why he did it. And um, we'll also be able to see how God reacted uh, to his decisions along the way. So with that in mind, um, we'll start out with a little background here and work our way through. Uh, most of the uh, hour today, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 6. So if you wanted to turn there and get ready for that. Numbers chapter 6, if you want to sit there for a few minutes and uh, let me carry on a little bit. One of the first things that we notice throughout the Old Testament is that vows were very important to the people. Very important to the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Uh, they indicated the importance of God to the person making that vow. They indicated to us uh, the very great significance of personal sacrifice and personal commitment uh, on behalf of the person making the vow. And that personal sacrifice and that personal commitment was designed to be a service to God. So the vow was wrapped around these things as they serve God. And that is something, I think, very frankly, that is missing in our generation, in our day and age. The idea of making binding commitments to God is somewhat alien in our easy believism days today. So Samson was a Nazarite from birth. 
Uh, he's most likely the most famous Nazarite in the Bible. He's not the only one mentioned, but he's probably the most famous one. So to understand his life and work, again, we have to take a look at um, uh, Numbers chapter 6. And here we're going to find what God commands or promises in rela uh, relationship to the Nazarite vow. And then we're going to see um, how Samson responds to God's commands and promises. And then we're going to see God's evaluation of those actions made by Samson. And if you recall, that's pretty much the pattern that we, we started off with when we started to study the book of Judges. God's commands or promises, man's response to them, and then God's evaluation of man. And that's been the cycle that we've seen particularly through the whole book of Judges. The word Nazir primarily means separated, though it is tied to other ideas as well. Uh, it is a seldom used word, and therefore each time it is used, you try to figure out how is that connected to the Nazarite uh, in particular. Basically, the Nazarite was an Israelite who took a special vow in Numbers chapter 6, again, offers these general facts. And I'm going to give you the general facts, and then we'll go a little bit deeper and we'll look at scriptures uh, in particular. First of all, the Nazarite vow is unique. Uh, this is a very special vow. In fact, it's even called a special vow in verse 2 of chapter 6. It says, when a man or a woman makes a special vow. So this Nazarite vow that we're talking about uh, is uh, unusual. It's unique. Uh, it's not very common. Number two, the Nazarite vow is voluntary. The priests of the tabernacle were priests by conscription. They were forced to be there. They, uh, another word was drafted. They had no choice uh, by, <clears throat> by birth. If you were a child of Levi, if you were in the tribe of Levi, and you were a male, you were either going to be serving the Lord as a priest or helping the priests in the tabernacle. Uh, in some role, uh, that was your life as a Levite. It's just that simple. Uh, you had no choice. But a Nazarite vow is voluntary. It's not required. And so the person who takes this vow does it entirely because of his or her own desires, because of his or her own will. Number three, we notice that this Nazarite vow is personal. Uh, it's not just personal in the sense that it's voluntary, but it's personal in the sense that it allows for any Israelite to express personally his or her devotion to God. 
It's, some, it's something which the individual alone decides and in which the individual personally expresses his or her devotion to the living God. Again, the Nazarite vow is also public. Everyone would have immediate recognition uh, of a person taking a Nazarite vow, particularly if he was a male. Every Nazarite male would have been easily identified in the camp of Israel. So this is a very public vow because he didn't shave his head or, or, or beard. Um, so you would be able to tell pretty quickly um, who was taking a vow. The Nazarite vow. Number five, this Nazarite vow was costly. The Nazarite vow did not allow you to uh, attend a family funeral, no matter how close the relative. The Nazarite vow <coughs> involved bringing very expensive sacrifices and lay it before God. And if in the course of your service as a Nazarite, someone drops dead next to you, you are defiled. And all the time that you have served according to your vow is up to that point nullified. You would have to present yourself before the priests in the tabernacle, go through an eight-day purification period, and then you start your vow all over again. So it would be costly in time and commitment. Six, this Nazarite vow was usually temporary. That is, you see, especially in verse 13, the person making the Nazarite vow can indicate the length of service that he or she was ready to commit to, to God. Scriptures do mention the fact that um, there are Nazarites that are Nazarites for life, for all their life, such as Samson. But normally, uh, it's a temporary vow, and the person is a temporary priest serving God in a special way. And since a priest is a a type of guardian of the land. Usually the Nazarite vow was often taken at a time of conflict or war. Holy war was the main idea in the Nazarite vow. Though a holy war uh, might easily include any battle against sin, it doesn't always require military clashes. So that the vow might be appropriate for any number of occasions. And so we're going to take a look at the law governing uh, this Nazarite vow. Now, depending on how you want to count it, there are three or four parts to the Nazarite vow. 
The first one we'll look at deals with wine and grapes. Some people clump those together. Others separate them. I'm going I'm to separate them here. So uh, there'll be uh, four topics that we'll be looking at in relationship to this vow. So starting at Numbers um, chapter 6, verse 2, I'm going to start in the middle of the verse there. It says, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite is dedicate, to dedicate himself to the Lord. And he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, and he, he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. We'll stop there for a minute, separate out the rest of that verse. So the first part of this law is that he's prohibited, if he's taken an Azrite vow, of drinking wine or strong drink, fermented uh, drink. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 9 prohibits the priest in the tabernacle from drinking alcohol when he's in the tabernacle. And the reason given for that rule is so that there's a distinction to be made between that which is holy and that which is profane, between that which is clean and that which is unclean. Now, if we're not careful, uh, we could jump to the conclusion that this means alcohol is profane or unclean, uh, but we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we need to look at the context in which this is given. It is because of men, not the alcohol, that are unclean, and thus may not they may not relax with the alcohol in the presence of God. It's not the alcohol that's being profane here. It's just that men in general are fallen and sinful and cannot indulge in this in the presence of God in the tabernacle. In the new covenant, however, men are commanded to drink from the fruit of the vine in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with God in the holiest of all times, in the time of worship, which we're going to do this afternoon. So we see the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant here. In the Bible, wine is for joy. We saw this earlier in Judges 9, 13, Psalm 104 and 15. It is a picture of the future blessings. It's a picture of when the curse on the ground is overcome and the vine will flourish. It is therefore has a close tie to the Sabbath, to the time when man's work is finished and he can relax in the presence of God. Again, we need to look at Scripture Interpreting scripture, Abraham was given wine by Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18. And similarly, at the annual feast of the tabernacles, Israel was encouraged to drink wine and strong drink in God's presence. 
Deuteronomy 14.26 says, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall, be, shall eat therein the presence of the Lord, your God, and rejoice. So the question then comes up, uh, why was the priest forbidden to enjoy a little Sabbath wine in God's presence? Well, it was to show that the priesthood was inadequate and that the final Sabbath had not yet come. One of the most important tasks the priesthood had was to exclude Israel from God, to guard his holy places from defilement. The priests were like, like the cherubim at the doors of Eden. In fact, if you read about the tabernacle, there are embroidered pictures of cherubims at the doors of the tabernacle. And that was to, again, keep it from being defiled. The priests were there to keep it from uh, becoming unclean. So the prohibition against alcohol was a sign to Israel that they had not come into their final Sabbath yet. However, the inclusion of alcohol in the Lord's Supper is a sign that in the New Covenant, the church has come into the Sabbath in Christ. For he has completed man's work, which man was unable to accomplish. In the Old Covenant, the labor of the priest was never finished, so he never sat down. Hebrews 10:11 says, day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Christ has sat down. The priest took upon himself the curse of endless toil so that God's people might rest. Because the priest did not sit down and did not drink wine in the tabernacle, Israel could sit down at the Passover and drink wine as Jesus did at the Last Supper. And for the same reason they could drink at the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. The Nazarite, as a temporary priest, had a holy task to perform. And until he had accomplished it, he was not to set down and enjoy the Sabbath blessing of wine. So that's the first part of the dealing with wine and, and grapes. Any thoughts, questions? Could be. I, I'm not sure on that either. Yeah.
All right, I've divided this section into two parts. The first was the wine, and now we're going to take a look at the grapes. Uh, number six, verse three, part B, if you will. Uh, Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes, or what we would call raisins. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from seeds even to the skins. Grapes were forbidden for the same reason alcohol was forbidden in Leviticus 25. is very helpful to understand this. During the Sabbath year, and that occurred how many years? Every, does anybody remember? Sabbath year? What? Every seven years? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and during the Jubilee year, how many years was that? 50. Okay. So during the Sabbath year and during the year of Jubilee, Israel was not to plant nor to harvest. They might eat whatever they found growing, and God promised a triple harvest the year before the Sabbath so that they would have plenty of food stored away to cover the time period in which they were not to plant. However, they were not allowed to eat any wild grapes. God said, your grapes of trimmed vines you shall not gather, Leviticus 25.5. And you shall not gather in from its untrimmed vines, Leviticus 25.11. So we have to understand here is the word untrimmed. And the word untrimmed here is, comes from the word nazir, which we started the lesson off with, which is the word that we use for Nazarite. Untrimmed, nazir, is where we get the word Nazarite. The grapevines growing every, everywhere during this year are like the hair on the head of the Nazarite. Both have been separated from being trimmed. The grape was a symbol of the fertility and the blessing of the land. It was a sign that the curse of the thorns had been replaced with the blessing of the vine. When Israel came into Canaan, uh, they were impressed uh, right off with the riches of the valleys and uh, the abundance of the grapes. Uh, Numbers 13, 20, and 23 says, When they reached the valley of Eshgal, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. The grape was a sign, once again, of the arrival of a Sabbath blessing and the end of the curse. My folks went to the Holy Land. They brought me back one souvenir, and it was a carving out of olive wood of the two men carrying one cluster of grapes on a pole. It was very impressive. (laughs) 
When the Sabbath year came, however, Israel was not allowed to eat the grapes. And this was a sign to them that the Sabbath had not really come and was still really in the future. They were not ready to enter into this privilege. And similarly, we see the word Nazir is used in Leviticus 22.2 to show that when the uh, priests were unclean, they were not allowed to eat any of the holy food. So we see Nazir, again, emphasizing the idea of separated. The priest was unclean. He was separated from the holy food. The grapes were separated and were not allowed to be eaten during the Sabbath years. In the New Covenant, the highlight of the Lord's Day is the meal with God, drinking the juice of the grape. For us, the Sabbath has come and has come through Jesus Christ. So once he finished his work and had dedicated to the Lord, afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. Just so when Jesus finished his work, he sat down at the Father's right hand and now drinks wine once again uh, with us in the kingdom. Matthew 25, 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we have there the, the prohibition on the wine and the prohibition on the grapes. Um, and we see Nazir meaning separated. We see it meaning untrimmed. Uh, and that's the word that we get the Nazarite from. Moving on to the next prohibition, and that deals with long hair. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 6 of Numbers. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. So this third separation demanded of the Nazarite uh, is not to use a razor during the time of his vow. If he becomes defiled, he must shave his head and let the hair grow back starting his vow all over again. We see this in Numbers 6, 9 and verse 11 as well. And when the vow has been completed, he will shave his head as well. Drop down to verse 18. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head at the doorway of the tent of meetings and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire, which is under the, under the sacrifice of a peace offering. And the priest shall take the ram's shoulder, boiled, and one unleavened cake out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them in the palm of the Nazarite after he has shaved his Nazir, that's his untrimmed hair. Let's take a look at three things that are presented here. 
First, the hair is referred to as Nazir in verse 19. And this connects us back to the untrimmed grapevines of Leviticus 25 that we just read about. Second, throughout this passage, what is dedicated is the head. And what is shaved is the head. So you might recall that Satan's head is to be crushed. So we have here an opposition between the crushed head of Satan and the dedicated head of, uh, dedicated to God. Third thing we might notice here is at the end of the vow, the head is shaved and then it's dedicated to God by burning it up. It's put in the fire as a peace offering, a peace sacrifice, and we realize that this hair, in effect, becomes food for God as it rises up to him. So how are we to understand all this? Well, remember the grapevine is a symbol of fertility and bounty of the God's hand. And similarly, the hair on the head is a sign of life and power and glory, as we shall see in the life of Samson. It, the hair and the head is consecrated just like the land that produces grapes is consecrated uh, through the grapevines. So in effect, the hair is a symbol of man's works um, and he's attempting to uh, do what he has vowed to do before God. And then when he accomplishes that vow, he uh, burns the hair as a, uh, to see if what he has done is acceptable before God. So the bounty of the land is all there waiting for him to eat, but man may not eat of it on the Sabbath until his own work is completed, and that work is acceptable before God. So the sign of the Nazarite's work is his hair. And when it is completed and it's acceptable, then the Nazarite may enter into the Sabbath and may eat grapes once again. Man may not eat of the Nazir grapes of the land until his own Nazir hair has been acceptable to God. When God is pleased, the man may enter into the Sabbath and the Nazir's long hair thus was a picture of God, of the good labors of humanity performed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. So at the end of his labors, the Nazarite devoted his hair to God, returning to God the power that he had been given and asking God to test his works. God's approval of the work of the Nazarite is seen in God's letting him drink wine once again. It is just as well as with Christ, who is what we would consider the great Nazarite. This long hair is a crown, you might say, 
In fact, the word Nazir is used for the crown worn by the high priests and the crown worn by the kings of Israel. So the hair on the Nazirite is kind of his crown. And these crowns by the high priest and the king are set apart for only special people. And they're set apart because these people have special tasks to perform. The king has special tasks. The priests have special tasks to perform. But being men, they are defiled by sin. And really only Christ could completely and fulfill uh, the tasks at hand that man could not. After reading through this, I believe that uh, the Nazarite who cuts his hair and offers it to God is a sign of his labors are ended. And it kind of foreshadows what we see in Revelations 4.10, where the saints take off their crowns and cast them at the foot of God's throne. Their work has been completed. Both the high priests and the king were crowned by anointing them with oil as well as a physical crown. And these crowns were for life and they were not cast down before God until their death. The Nazarite crown had to be temporary, something that could be dedicated at the end of his vow. And the hair was very suitable for this purpose. So again, we see some of the priests and kings were for life, but the Nazarite vow was only temporary for a certain period of time. <clears throat> Moving on to the next prohibition had to do with death. So chapter 6, verse 6. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to, the, to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation is to God, is on his head. In all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Death is a curse upon man. We see this coming from Adam's sin and um, continues right on through today. And since man is made of dust, the curse is that to dust he shall return. So when people die, they're usually buried into the ground. Or their ashes are scattered upon the ground. The ground is cursed with death. Thus, anything that gets dirty or gets dirt on it uh, may be seen as having the curse of death. Accordingly, the terms dirty or unclean means symbolically death. So the reason also works the other way. Getting dirty means getting death on you. 
but also contracting, contacting death in any form is equivalent to being dirty or unclean. Thus, anything resembling death in the Bible is called dirty or unclean or dusty. So all the laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness have to do with one way or another with death. And again, looking at tradition, looking at the background of the people, we start to see how uh, this has affected their lives. For instance, um, in the Old Covenant, men always wore some form of shoe or sandal uh, to separate themselves from contact with the cursed soil, which contained death. Uh, we were noted in Genesis that only the serpent travels with the belly or his flesh on the cursed soil. Uh, clean land animals have shoes or hooves to separate them from this. And men only take their shoes off on holy ground. And when you're entering someone's house, you wash your feet to avoid being contamination into the house. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, that curse has been lifted and removed from the soil as well. We know from our study of Genesis that uh, Adam should never have faced uncleanliness. He should have never have faced death. Um, the Nazarite taking the a role of Adam is not to come, come in contact with death either. He is diligently to avoid it. Now the Nazarite with his consecrated head is set aside to be a holy warrior, uh, to be a head crusher, if you will. Um, if, as I said earlier, that these vows were taken during wartime, uh, that meant that he would be surrounded by death quite often. Um, he will constantly come in contact with death and according to the laws of the war camp, he will have to purify. And normally, however, the holy war only lasts for a few days. And so that after the battle, he shaves his head because of the defilement. And at the same time of shaving it, uh, it ends his vow and he has to start over again. So a man who takes a Nazarite vow for some reason, or some woman in fact, who takes it, might have to shave his or her hair during the course of the vow. And if he or she comes in contact with a dead person, and then continue on with their vow. <clears throat> I haven't been able to confirm this, but there are ancient Hebrew writings, uh, and one of them was a commentary on, on some of the Old Testament, and it speaks about a queen of Israel who had taken a Nazarite vow uh, for seven years. And <clears throat> six years, she only had one week left on her vow when <clears throat> one of her servants dies in front of her. 
she has to go to the priest, uh, spends eight days of purification, and then um, starts all over again for another seven years. I'm not sure the lividity of that, but uh, that's the commitment that they had. Now, what about a permanent Nazarite like Samson? Well, number six does not say anything about them. And perhaps Samson shaved his head and started over after each battle that he fought. Or perhaps he was a lifelong battle for him so that the battle was never really over. So he did not ever have to shave his head because of wartime defilement. We do not know for sure. And we are not told in scripture uh, and it's not given us any answers. So it's probably not important, otherwise God might have shared that with us. There's more in number six about sacrifice of the Nazarite, uh, but uh, they really have no direct connection with what we're going to be studying with Samson. So we now have an idea of what the Nazarite was supposed to be. However, he was a picture of what Israel as a whole should be. In fact, he was a picture of what all of humanity, including us, should be. He was single-minded, dedicated to a particular task. He confessed that he was excluded from God's bounty because of sin, but he confessed that God was giving him the power to perform this task. He expected at the end of the task to enter into rest and relaxation in the presence of God. Thus Samson, as a Nazarite, was a picture of what Israel should have been doing. They should have been single-minded, dedicated to the Lord. And they, if they would have, they would have then had the power to overcome the Philistines. Each of them would have been powerful just as Samson was powerful. Leviticus 26.8 says, Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. And Joshua 23.10 says, One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he has promised. However, they had sinned, and they had compromised, and so they became blind and weak, unable to do these tasks uh, that they should have been able to perform. So we see in the life of Samson a picture of both aspects. We see strong in the Lord and weak in compromise. And how much does that reflect our society and our church today? So instead of jumping right into scripture on Samson, any thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah.
Yeah, if you read on in the scripture, if that person taking the vow can set the limit on what they wanted. Right. So. Taking the Right, right. Yeah. Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the true Sabbath rest is coming. Yeah, and when we gather around the table this afternoon, we can remember that we're entering in that Sabbath rest uh, with our Lord and Savior. We are sharing His love for us uh, at that time and worshiping Him at the same time. Which brings up the question, are there Nazarites in the New Testament? And some people will say yes. Uh, Acts 18.18 18, talks about Paul going uh, to a certain city and, and waiting there until he cut his hair. We don't know that he had taken a Nazarite vow, but that was mentioned. And then four other young men later on, I think in Acts 21, talks about their cutting their hair. Uh, because of a vow they had made. So, um, yeah. You know, I, I just think when the uh, soldiers came to get him in the garden, they had to ask who Jesus was because they couldn't tell him apart from the other crowd. So I'm assuming that he, in appearance, was in the style and dress of the people that he was surrounded with. Um, I don't know that the physical appearance was all that different than the other guys around him. Um, some people mentioned John the Baptist. Uh, as a Nazarite. Um, he certainly would, would probably look like one. It does say he uh, did not drink alcohol, but it doesn't say anything about any of the other parts of the vow. And it doesn't say anything about, of course, he had a real close haircut right at the very end, so I don't know if you could count that or not. Anything else? All right. Well, let's, yeah, Ken.
good point. Yeah. Well, we've got people waiting to come in, so let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people. We thank you for the time that we can come together and worship you. So please send your spirit to direct our hearts, our minds. May our focus be upon you and the love of Christ, for he has died for our sins. And we have uh, come before you this day with a humble heart, asking for forgiveness. Lord, send repentance to our hearts and our minds. Send your repentance to the whole church wherever they gather this day. May your spirit dwell with us that we might praise and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.